Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we're recording. And I'm lucky to have with me Anthea McGill, who's a GP and researcher from New Zealand, currently practicing in Queenstown in New Zealand. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Ellie. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Thank you. I became aware of you uh, kind of in the online world of doctors who are treating their patients in a maybe slightly unorthodox way that's becoming more orthodox but everyone's got their own way of, um, you know, kind of uh, executing that with their patients. Can you tell me the path of how you got to where you are today professionally? Yes, well, I suppose way back, because I'm not young anymore. Um, in 1996, I was doing, um, I'd set up my own general practice and uh, a dietitian actually asked me if I could um, help women lose weight with the hormonal problems. And um, that was the very year when I suppose, well, it was a year or so after leptin was discovered. And I had to say to this dietitian, I have no idea. I don't know anything medical about why people gain weight or anything like that um, and why they couldn't lose it, more to the point. Um, So I, um, as I said, had a look around and found there's very little medical um, but there was going to be um, one of the early obesity conferences. Uh, it's now called ANZOS, the Australian New Zealand Obesity Society. Back then it was, I can't remember what it was called back then, something else. Um, and they were um, going to be looking at that. And that was in Australia. So I think it was in Sydney that year. Um, so I um, tootled off to that um, uh, meeting and found it was all quite exciting. And at that stage, as I say, leptin was the big sort of white hope um and um and became interested in that and then you know obviously read around started to try and bring this into my practice um but of course in those days it was all sort of um high carb low fat um and which of course i followed for a while um and then i started to do some studies with boyd swinburne um at the department of community health it was then in at auckland um and um you know started to do some medication studies i think we did all all stat i was just the clinician um but i soon realized things were not quite as they seemed and i didn't want to keep doing drugs like this when i didn't understand how they were supposed to be working um and wanted to design my own studies and so um i had the opportunity to um join the a um the auckland um, nutrition unit and um, you know Auckland University Nutrition Unit. So I um, I started working there, and long story, sort of you know did a few studies. We did one on chitosan, um, which is a fibre that was supposed to help lose weight, 
and then um, and then I sort of got roped into actually turning that into part of my PhD and so I started doing a PhD as well as family and the usual things that one does um, but started to realize that actually things were not a, as they seemed there was there were some things that didn't follow most of these studies were industrially funded you know um, we got grants but um, a lot of them you know had to be augmented by by industry the nutrition industry and drug industry and then I start to see more you know literature on on how these studies always seem to point towards the drugs and that sort of thing um, I think was it uh, I forgot his name Smith he was an early BMJ editor and he started to say that the journals you know were not unbiased either um, and um, and you know read started to read more of the political articles and so then during my PhD just uh, I'll finish soon. Um, I thought, well, the only way to really solve this with all this controversy um, was to actually, well, what are humans? How do they get here? What what was? How did they? How have they survived? Um, and you know, what were they eating? What were they doing? How are they behaving? And of course, that you know, once I start to get into the evolutionary nutrition area, um, it just got so exciting. I really, you know. I found things and, and I ended up having to look in the literature of anthropology, obviously the archaeology, which is now, you know, genetic archaeology and, um, and deep sort of cancer science where, you know, you looked at how antioxidants were and pathways were really working. And then um, the dynamic ed energy budget of um, um, Bas Kuyaman, a, a, um, an Amsterdam worker. And, and researcher who was very interesting. I'll just digress a little here because I think this is it's almost a unique yeah. story. He was originally a biologist, and but a very sensible one. He'd been a naturalist ever since he was very young. And, and then he got into, well, how does the energy flow through the system and of, of environments, of ecologies? Um, you know, he looked at pond ecologies initially first. And he actually, taught himself and did courses and learned about physics and biophysics usually physicists become fascinated with biology and start to study mm. that but he came from this other direction and um and developed this i still think it's a bedrock main theory for um for how we should look at whole ecologies and organisms and he did it through their lifestyle watch the energy move uh, sorry their lifestyle their life cycle mm. um and and both um, and to see how that was um, you know how it was going right through from you know the you know the the beginning you know whatever their you know egg you know the the first sort of gene um, uh, you know germ cells that that started them off and and how they you know stored energy how they um, mo mobilized it all through their life cycle and so looked at reproduction and then and then energy storage and nutrient storage so they could mobilize things at certain times in their life and then the whole, and he was looking at whole communities and he looked at organisms and um and so i started to write to him in 2008 i think and then finally went on one of his courses the um, deb courses um and realized actually um this is really exciting because the science was here and the energy could move through the systems. And a lot of ecology wasn't actually that good at really looking at where 
energy and nutrients and how whole systems worked. You know, there were big gaps. Well, actually, that physically can't happen. The science of that sort of the physics is not actually really working that well. But his systems did work, and he had this big model, and you put in various types of things. And he's always and he's now retired, um, but he was very. He gave me hope that actually the science would be right to look at these things. And then I, um, to get back to the original story, started to um, wind that into my whole evolutionary sort of look at how humans moved from being, um, you know, the, about seven, 10 to 7 million years ago, they started to move towards becoming this large brain animal. And then, of course, it dawned on me, large brain? can't have that without some pretty sophisticated changes in, um, in the whole metabolism of this animal. And we, we always highlight, you know, our big brain, we can, we've got upright, you know, um, body shape and, and um, you know, locomotion. So we just walk on two legs, we've got grasping prehensile hands, and then we've got the big brain to make it, you know, make the hands do things and create things. We also had the big brain that had language. And once you have language, then you can sequence thoughts. And obviously we were already cultural. So then you could um, you know, communicate with language and pass things on, which all is well known. But where was the energy? Where were the nutrients coming for this? You know, and where, where's the metabolism that, that, that supports this? And so I started to realize, and of course, there's some nice work by Uli Jazek and various other sort of medical nutrition anthropologists and they were looking at well um actually it looks as though humans had a really wide you know variety in their diet um and they had they need a lot of energy for this big brain and um and that was sort of pretty obvious and i and i thought gosh yes but you know how do you run it and oh my goodness we live such a long time you know animals this size our size should live to maximum sort of 40 you know we're not a very big animal we're not like an elephant that you know can live a really long time but and in fact this is this is one of the i think a, a myth really we've since we've been fully human probably about 170,000 years ago and it might be further back and i mean this is these are all things daily there's new changes here um but we um you know we really could um you know do things in a different way we were doing things in a different way just to survive and so with the big brain and the language obviously there was a lot of cultural stuff going on and um actually i'm just gonna move around a wee bit for a sec sorry i'm just gonna move out anyway so we're cultural beings and um and we've had this wide variety of food and nutrients just going to turn something off here <laughs> Domestic life goes on. Okay. <laughs> um, right. So, so we needed to have all these nutrients, but well, what was the metabolism that could support this? And and then I started to look at the science. Um, you know that it wasn't just energy; it was a whole lot of other nutrients. And then, so looking at the science now, the modern science that we've only just got in the last, you know, twenty even 15 years, because I started really thinking about this um, probably in 2004 about the nutrients, the different and the metabolism that humans have. So I'm going to have a little digression here. Um, it was, um, oh, I've forgotten his name, um, Neil. 
um, in 2004 at a nutrition conference in Australia. And he said, oh, we, you know, humans have a, a very weird, you know, vitamin C metabolism. Uric acid is, is pretty weird. And um, we, we need vitamin C in most other animals, except guinea pigs, a few other weirdies, uh, you know, to have, um, uh, you know, don't make vitamin C. And, um, and then uric acid is somehow tied up. And we've got, we've had high uric acid levels um, since the great apes. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Perhaps there are other uh, metabolic changes as well. Um, and so I started to look at the science of, of where we were at metabolically. But I didn't find it where I thought. It wasn't in the medical literature. You know, all the basic Krebs cycle and all that sort of stuff was in the medical literature, along with an awful lot of rodent studies and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, all the work that was going on and still going on and, and um, you know, diabetes and metabolic syndrome type work, which I have to say metabolic syndrome, I think, is, is the catch-all phrase for all the diabetes, cardiovascular risk and um, you know, deranged liver function tests that are all to do with, and this is, I think, really important, is lack of micronutrients. Humans need a lot. And our food, of course, has become quite refined. Anyway, to get back to this metabolic stuff, um, so I start to look at um, at the, I suppose that the sort of deep metabolic science of, of antioxidant functioning. And this I found really fascinating is in fact, we have this wonderful, very sophisticated system called the NRF2 system. And it's a big key controller of a whole lot of metabolic and immune pathways. Anything that uses energy plus all the nutrients that make the energy pathways go. In, in humans, and there are a number of these NRF2, KEEP, ARE, or antioxidant, um, oh gosh, um, ARE, um, something, oh, completely gone out of my head, I'll think about it soon, uh, a response elements, um, ARE. So this big key um, sort of complex um, in, our, um, in our cytoplasm would move into the nucleus and set off, and it would point to, with certain... Um, uh, input um, from big complex molecules, usually the antioxidant type ones, but all sorts of other plant and animal molecules. And those would ha actually have a bit of a negative effect and point to this um, the system and say, you need to make this pathway, you need to activate this pathway using more of these micronutrients, um, often antioxidant type ones, but they're basically electron movers and shufflers. So they weren't as tight as enzymatic reactions. It would point to, okay, you've had some sun damage for, on your skin. Um, I'm sending you a negative signal and now you need to do some skin repair work, okay? And, oh, I've just got some vitamin C in, which is slightly pro-oxidant, and you need to make a, a, a magnified and amplified antioxidant response. Now, this probably goes on in a lot of other um, uh, um, you know, systems, but uh, you know, in other animals and things, but for various reasons, humans you know, made, you know, have really augmented the system. And I think this is extremely important to understand. We did have to manage our brain and our whole way of being to make 
the energy metabolism super efficient. So in fact, you know, you think that, oh, you know, well, we're just average mammals. Actually, we're not. We're very smart in our actual metabolism, not just our brains. Okay. It's, one, it's a wonderful system. So we have um, very efficient um, uh, energy metabolism. We have very um, sophisticated um, immune responses. Why do we need a good immune response? Because we were eating a lot of toxic chemicals. You know, in those, all those plants that as nomads, we were wandering around the world sort of experimenting with and then learning culturally which ones we could survive on. Um, we actually became very good at detoxifying. So we're doing two things at once. We were detoxifying a lot of the chemicals we didn't want to use, and we were press ganging the antioxidants and all sorts of other chemicals that our system had now adapted to use. Okay, so this was um, very, very important. This is not like other animals. They have fairly set diets and they manage, and they don't live very long, or mammals perhaps I should say, and they've got, um, and their metabolic rate like ours is quite fast, and, um, and so they, you know, bred very quickly and were gone. You know, our dogs don't live that very long, um, and yet they're not much smaller than us, well, some of them aren't. Um, and here we were being super efficient with energy, having a great immune system. And the last thing I want to men mention, uh, good at detoxifying things. And the last thing is we have a great intracellular and general tissue repair system. Now, I just want to go back to that longevity aspect. Cells that are uh, immune cells, they actually don't last long. They need to whiz around and be, you know, suddenly burgeon into being you know protective and doing all the things they need to to ward off some infection or clean up some injury um, but they are fast turnover cells so what's their most important thing they need they need the nutrients but they also need to be able to divide without making mistakes they need to be able to divide faithfully one of the ways of managing to make them divide faithfully is to keep toxins away. Yay, we've already got a good detoxification system. This is working so well. I like to get all this stuff together. Sorry about being so enthusiastic, but mm -hmm. I just, I just, you know, I think biology is wonderful, as you can tell. And, and we're part of biology and we have some wonderful metabolic things. I am going to talk a bit about behavior too, don't worry. But um, so, but what about, don't humans live a long time? Oh, yes, they do. Well, what about those long-lived cells? Things like brain cells and heart cells, which don't replicate. What are we going to do about them? How are we going to make them keep working? Oh, we'll just devise some very smart little way of intracellular organelle recycling. Okay? That's really important. That, that means your brain cell can last 100, 110 years and still be working. But it's not replicating it's not losing all of its connections and memories well we hope it isn't with alzheimer's being such a problem i mean this is a big problem um we want to keep those cells alive and keeping their connections and still learning and making new ones at advanced age so we need to be able to tidy them up and recycle them and support them with nutrients um but not change the cell so we have autophagy and that works really well um, and humans. We also have other 
repair mechanism. So that's, that's the really why we need to have a very efficient, oh, and the oxidation stress. Well, we've got a great efficient, um, you know, oxidation and um, uh, system and man management of oxidative stress. And that goes on inside the brain and the muscle cells. And then we have the good detoxification to keep those immune systems going. And we also have the, um, the, 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 the micronutrient availability. We have a diet that supports that. And then lastly, we do have a, this adaptive repair and so we can keep on if we overuse, you know, we get calluses on our hands and all sorts of things like that. So we can do, and other animals do that too, but we have all those things going on. So you can see we're set now. If we get the right nutrition, enough energy, and we um, get all those micronutrients, um, then we can actually, wow, high energy metabolic rate animal with this huge you know energy and nutrient drawing brain and we can live such a long time oh good because that suits cultural living very well obviously it all went together but i mean this this just shows how unusual we are metabolically so you can see already that actually doing studies in small rodents is going to set you on the wrong path these are little nocturnal things that uh, you know Certainly mice are probably a bit more vegetarian, but rats are pretty omnivorous. Rats might not be such a bad model, but they don't live very long. They breed so quickly. And, um, and so they don't need to have long-lived repair systems. So perhaps that's not such a good model. And the, the good thing is now with our current science, we can do a lot of this modeling um, on our big computer, big, da big data crunching you know, um, processes. So that's, that should really help um, speed this along and get some more research. So the, the other things that I think are really worth talking about right now about our metabolism is we have other unique aspects. If you have a big brain, then lots of things grow with it. One of the things that has grown is our drive, all our drives probably, but um, our drive to get food. But this is with a difference from other mammals. We have a drive to get food based pretty much only on energy density. Now, the reason for this is, I think, is that we've become so nomadic, and so we have such a complex set of nutrients that will be helpful, that we can't choose what they are. We have to learn culturally. So we've been cultural for a long time, so we actually have a lot of these things now embedded in our genetics. So um, to learn these things culturally, it, it, you know, and you're nomadic, then you need to find wherever you find that food, it needs to have enough nutrients. Well, guess what? Wild plants and animals are very complex beings. They've got their fit, they've got good immune systems, they've got all the nutrients that make them work. So, um, well, if we just eat a, a wide variety of those types of things, then this organism, this fairly recently evolved mammal, but don't forget, and I'm going to talk to this in a minute if you can, wait for me, um, is, is um, actually very highly advanced along the mammalian trajectory. So that's really important to understand about what our genes and gene controls are doing. So we have now got all these nutrients, which we can find in all sorts of foods, remember, we're good at um, 
passing on cultural knowledge. We're good at detoxifying things and we're good at press ganging lots of nutrients into our system. So once we culturally know that these foods are safe and keep our, our tribe going, we can survive on it. And there's just, so, there are so many nutrients and so many foods. So we don't need to eat a certain type of plant for our genes because there are thousands of chemicals. We know so few of the vitamins and things, or we know the absolute ones we absolutely have to have. But in fact, there are an awful lot of other ones that actually augment these ones. We don't actually know whether it's just, you know, I mean, we know giving beta carotene as a, um, a supplement to smokers who are in a pro-oxidant state can make their cancer rate higher. So perhaps it wasn't really beta carotene, it's the things that come with the beta carotenes, the other alpha carotenes, the other things that come with the plants that supply these types of things. And this is probably one of the reasons why uh, um, supplements and antioxidants and even minerals, unless they're in deficiencies, don't work, um, is that um, we, we make antioxidant responses and things, but we need to choose from thousands of, of things that come in. And there was a study by Bath, I think in Germany, about 2005, I think, and he looked at an old fashioned um, German apple and um, expressed out the, the, the cloudy juice and then tried to analyze, and this is a bit before metabolomics, but I think he'd now done a lot more on the metabolomics um, of what the actual chemicals were in that. And he said, oh, probably about 4,000 useful chemicals. He haven't even started with the other varieties of apples, let alone the pears. You know, this is the sort of food that we've been eating for millions of years. Um, very high nutrient. And of course, humans have become rather polygenetic because, you know, we have, you know, been moving around the globe and interacting backwards and forwards and interbreeding backwards and forwards with our Neanderthal relatives and all these sort of things as we move around the globe. Um, but, you know, so we actually have a, a huge reservoir of using, you know, certain big groups. But as I said before, they're not enzymatically linked. So, you know, they're not tight enzymatic systems. They're more these electron nudges and, you know, shufflers. Uh, they're called, um, what do you call it? Michael reactors. Um, that's some very nice work. And that, that works into the NRF2 system. I won't go into that anymore, really. But um, so we don't need to have certain types of diets for our certain blood type or any sort of type, really, because we will find things. And sure enough, there are some whole families that can't manage something in cucumbers, for example. That's quite a common one, cucubit, some sort of uh, one of the things there. And then nut allergies, so the juglandic acid and walnuts, some families can't manage that and become allergic or just you know, unable to, not, not just so much allergic, but actually unable to manage it and it damages some of their processes. So they learn to avoid that. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, these... Um, all, all these systems um, speak to why we, um, we, we must study humans and we must look at the, the evolutionary um, science with the new science, but we also need to look at the cultural side of things. So, and of course, just getting back onto the, I suppose, of the three big things that matter to human metabolism is one is the drive to get high energy food and what that means. Well, of course, once we became, um, and, and our big brains, you know, have got a really strong drive for high energy food. So once we start being able to be cultural and then technological, we start to separate 
the high energy food, we start to breed the high energy grains and the fatty animals that are fed domestically. Um, and of course, what happens? Their nutrient density just drops like a stone. You know, suddenly we're, and we've been actually for 10,000 years that some groups have been, you know, farmers. Um, we know, and that's what um, uh, Stanley Uli Jazek and, you know, we, we know that, and, and other science has now shown that in fact, we, our stature became shorter. Um, we were less muscular and we're already as a species um, sort of over fat and under muscle. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, so we, we really did need to have the strong drive to get enough energy. And uh, we thought we'd always, we always had got enough nutrients with it because, you know, things weren't refined and farmed in those days, but there we've been farming or well, some groups have been farming for a good few thousand years now. And as I said, our statues got short, even our brains have shrunk, whether or not they work less better or not. Um, but we, um, we, we always were actually very quite, you know, we were more robust. Um, we, um, you know, we're, um, quite well protected from um, from um, uh, you know from from infections, we could repair ourselves, and in fact, people did live a long time. The average has always been said oh, about forty, but we know both from myths and also now finding old skeletons that um, that humans can and did live a long time before our so-called you know medical sort of advances. It does seem, I have to say, and this is. Uh, I mean, probably is all do documented, but anecdotally, we're not very good at childbirth. We, you know, we've got this rigid pelvis, we've got these big brain babies and, um, and you know, various other issues. So, um, and then of course, um, well, not of course, but I'll talk, you know, I'll talk about it now is actually, we wean fairly early. We get babies, because guess what? They've got a big brain, lots needs lots of nutrient. And uh, we actually started them on, on good, healthy, high nutrient food, including lots of minerals. So meats and things, we chewed those apparently. And we started weaning at about four months. We kept breastfeeding for quite a long time, but not fully. So at about four months, and you can see most, most mothers say to me, yes, they're looking at the food they want to eat. You know? mm -hmm. And so instead of starting them on this um, low nutrient, high energy type of you know, grains and porridges and things like that, we should be actually really starting them. And this is what I do say to my patients, much to this sort of total surprise to begin with. I want you to mush up some fruit with skins on, you know, and, and, um, and some seeds that you can blend. So I want them to get a bit of fiber because that's where a lot of nutrients are. And then, you know, your veggies, lots of color, lots of, um, of fiber that again, you can put through a blender or, I mean, in the old days, probably they chewed it and then spat into their baby's mouths as so many species do to feed their young. Um, and, and then not too long afterwards getting onto the meat um, because, you know, the big brain uses an awful lot of minerals and it does need to be a complete set of minerals. We think of meat as having red, you know, as, as having hemoglobin with the iron in the middle of it. But, I mean, you, you can't run around being a wild animal or even, well, they can with tame animals, I suppose, or, you know, domestic ones, um, without having all the other minerals that you need as well. Um, so, you know, this is one of the big things I have is, well, you know, just giving iron supplements and things like that. What about all the other things? Which is why I'm so keen on little wild sardines, even if they're tinned. Um, you know, they have 
they're fit, they've got a good immune system, they've been out there living and breeding and things, even though the water might not be so clean anymore. And and so they're minerals. You'll get all your um, your manganese, magnesiums and seleniums and things, as well as you get your iron from them. So so we need to start this in babies because they've got these big brains um, and the human um, body, the woman's body, cannot. It's already managed to completely feed it as it's grown in the embryo at the fetus stage and then to you know the, the 40 weeks um but after a few months the, the mother cannot supply she cannot eat enough nutrients micronutrients to supply the baby's brain and her own and at least starting i actually think you should keep um one or two feeds going for you know you know 24 months if you can um you know perhaps the top up at night and things so you just get a little bit of the extra um uh sort of perhaps immune support and although probably by then it's not so much but just you know again if the baby gets diarrhea and vomiting it's very good to be able to switch back to more breastfeeding again because it's often the only thing they'll be wanting um so but to start um the solid foods and particularly with high nutrient foods i i tend to start off with with um with fruit um, with skins and seeds that you blend up. Now, these skins and seeds are really, really important. I'll go through that and throughout our whole life and the color and the strong tasting things, because as you can probably guess, might as well say it now, um, that, that those types of foods are going to have a wide variety of nutrients. In, and actually, we need non-grain fiber to go down to our colon um, we're just doing a study at the moment and lots of people are doing so many studies on the, on the gut microbiota, um, which isn't just bacteria either. It's some very smart things, including viruses. Um, but anyway, we, we need these, um, these fibers to take some of the spores down there and meet with other microbes down in the colon. Um, and, and they, they're quite, um, mobile but if you actually have the spores say on an organic lettuce that you've still got a bit of soil attached to then some of those spores will be protected by the fiber in your in your um in your plants and be able to get all the way down there and start sort of working down there and that you know even though it's an anaerobic environment they still seem to be able to survive or at least they'll be taking something from the soil that that will be useful for metabolizing that type of um, plant and probably a lot of others. And in fact, um, they've shown, shown some nice um, studies, just a slight digression here, we will get back onto the um, feeding of babies. Um, they've found that, um, that um, I th was it Gibbons? No, not Gibbons, it must've been orangutans, I think, or some sort of um, primate, large primate, that eats a lot of soil, as long as it's clean and you know an ordinary forest soil, the ones that eat more and a wider variety, you know, food right off the ground with soil on it, um, had a much better microbiota and 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 seemed to be better metabolically. So there's where the soil is, if it's coming, you know, it's around things where there's um, it is soil. In other words, it's got organisms growing from it and in it. Um, anyway, so um, so we need that fiber. Getting back to the actual big plants and animals and things but particularly the um the vegetables and fruit we need that fiber to go all the way down to our colon the large bowel and um and replace or at least stimulate and get going with digesting that fiber they eat a lot of the fiber which is you know carbohydrate based 
and there's all sorts of carbohydrates too don't forget there's the long long sort of true fibers um the ones that they can't the bugs can't eat but there's all sorts of you know um other polysaccharides and oligosaccharides as well as glycans and bits and pieces that these um are microflora can actually um digest and of course as they digest them they release the um the thousands and thousands of other micronutrients that um came along for the ride and were protected from the acid the bile acids the alkaline um upper gut they were protected in the fiber and and now the, the microbes are eating the fiber and they're being released and that's where we absorb um these very complex uh, molecules which um, of course, you know, we sort of have downplayed as being really important because we couldn't find exactly what we, you know, one particular thing that we absolutely needed. So therefore it was discounted. So this is where we get our thousands and thousands of different, depending on which culture and, and where in the world we're living, um, uh, micronutrients, which then get um, very smartly, because it's a special NRF2 system, if you remember me talking about that, that's smartly, um, working um, in the liver as well as all the rest of the cells. And, and it's then starting to reposition you know, where these, these molecules should go and what they should be doing, which is, as you can guess, helping the, um, the immune system, keeping it, um, you know, removing toxins um, and being very efficient energy-wise and, um, and, and keeping our, um, our long-lived cells, you know, very good you know, antioxidant protection. Um, and doing general repair. So you can see that these micronutrients, which keeps coming back to why nutrition is so important. So of course you need to get this going in the babies. So we're back to babies being weaned um, and not delay and not just give them hopefully breast milk, but unfortunately the synthetic, um, you know, milk formulas, um, and they're called formulas for a reason. And guess what? Humans are not good formula followers when it comes to nutrition because they need these, these wild and heritage type chemicals. So, so we need to get these on board for our babies so that they can start all their smart, you know, um, you know brain growth and everything else and start to protect right from that early age, um, you know, metabolic problems, which is mostly due to a lack of these things. Okay, so one of our biggest problems is lack of high quality food and, and not just too much. In fact, it's quite nice to know that you can actually overeat a fair bit of energy if you've got all these micronutrients going in, because guess what? You just speed up your repair systems, you know? So instead of waiting till your 40s when you, when you already got some significant heart disease, that's symptomatic or way before that, before it's way before symptomatic, you're actually preventing it right early on because you're doing the repair work a lot of the time. And the more energy you have, as long as there's a good proportion of the micronutrients, it's zimming along. It's actually quite hard to gain weight if you get a whole lot of these things. So this is very important. Energy in, energy out, went out with the arc. And actually it never even got onto the arc, okay? That is so simplistic. Um, and so we've got to give these babies um, a really good chance. And unfortunately, um, this act, the chance needs to start right four months, in my view, at least before conception. Mums need to, and dads, need to get going with a really high nutrient and clean diet. Now I'm gonna talk about clean in a minute.
Okay. Yes, and this is something I want to pick up on briefly. Yeah. Is what I've mm. seen you write about before. The fascinating mm. explanation of morning sickness during pregnancy and yeah. why women likely get chocolate cravings at a certain time in their menstrual cycle. Mm. And I think that will yeah. feed into what you're about to talk about. It absolutely does. It, what the baby needs when it's just in those first few hundreds of cells, it's just starting to differentiate the cells in the first sort of um, probably about five, or oh no, earlier than that, sorry, about four weeks from period or earlier. Um, not, not right away, because there's a stage where all the cells are all the same and they can re, re, re-differentiate to, to actual specific organs and organelles. But very early on, you need to get going with um, with the 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 all the, the, the nutrients need to be chosen by the whole um, conceptus, which is its early placenta or its corpus luteum. I, I won't go into those. Those are just parts of the support for the baby. They need to be um, need to choose, and they've got all the mechanisms to do it. What nutrients they get from the mother's stores. So this is absolutely imperative because our liver NRF2s, and there's a different NRF2, again, remember that big sort of um, metabolic modulator and organizer? There's a special placental NRF2, and that picks and chooses what nutrients it needs for that time of that part of the gestation of that baby. It does not want our rather coarsely screened you know, chemicals that the mature liver, um, you know, just ignores and, and detoxifies. Okay. It needs them all pre primed and ready for, for um, development, not just maintenance of an adult body, but development of a new brain and all these other types of structures in the, in the human, but particularly the brain. It's extremely sensitive as we well know. Um, and it's got to get all the meta- metabolism right. So we need those mums and dads to be eating a clean diet, really, um, a really staunch one, right at, you know, over those few months. Okay, that's the preference. And then to expect, and all guys and women, guys and everybody, yes, I'm afraid it is uncomfortable. I'm speaking to somebody who's got a long history of a lot of. Um, sort of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Yeah, you don't need to speak about that. No, I'm just joking, but it's, it's a pretty wearying sort of thing. Um, yeah. Then the baby is running everything. And all it wants the mum to do is keep the fluids up and perhaps a little bit of, of um, sweet things. And occasionally, well, sometimes there may be cravings for something that wasn't stored properly. So you may go through a stage, just a fairly short one, where you just crave something, okay? And then it goes again. I mean, that may be simplistic, but it makes sense what you're talking about for Mm. the craving. And it's quite, it's it's, um, typically said that cravings are of things you don't normally like. Now, that would make sense for what you were saying, because that would be what you might be missing. That's exactly right. So we can't always determine what they are. So I have to, well, I ask my young women who are pregnant, I think they're pregnant, to say, please keep mums and sisters and mothers-in-law at bay and say, you will eat healthy when you get to 14 weeks. Right now, I'm allowed to eat anything I like and, um, and please don't prepare nice things and healthy things and same to their partners. Um, all I have to do 
is drink fluids, you know, water and keep my fluids up because you'll feel more nauseated and vomit more if you're not drinking fluids, which is very hard to do, I might say. But that's what you have to concentrate on. And usually something really bland. And I think that early pregnancy probably invented the junk food diet, the refined, starchy, sugary type things. Okay. Um, and that's, that's enough. Okay. And some women lose, you know, a few kilos. That's fine. They also, in early pregnancy, should not be running around. You're tired for a reason. It's all hormonal and chemical. Um, and you need to you know, minimize stress. So this is where when you've got another toddler and you've got other, other children, you've got to run around and things. I just, and I'll be quite honest here, I just give women off work notes all the time as soon as they're tired and say, look, this is their most important job at the moment. If you're going to keep working, get as much help from all your rallies as possible. It's the first three months you know, that really are important. That's your big job at the moment. So you need to be easy on yourself um, and keep those fluids up and rest. Even though you've got nothing to show for it, it's the hormones that are getting ready for what, what you are going to show later, which is going to be a healthy baby. So those, those things are really important. So the cravings, um, now I just want to add a little extra thing. So the nausea and vomiting and, um, and those other types of things are trying to stop you eating things that you should have in your stores. But there's another thing as well, and that is sometimes you crave often quite starchy things. Um, it used to be, and in, in some cultures in Africa, when the women started eating a certain type of clay, that was the pregnancy test. Mm. They knew they were pregnant. And in cultures where they're eating a lot more, um, they're exposed to a lot more fairly benign, usually bugs and things and, and, and food and all those sort of things because they're eating a much um, wilder type of diet or subsistence, some people call it. Um, they're more likely to be getting all sorts of microbes in there that produce toxins. So like preformed toxins, um, which is what we now call food poisoning. You know, if you eat a bug that's made some toxins or other minerals that are a bit toxic. So these women are eating this clay, which adsorbs it. It brings it onto them, onto the, the clay and stops it being active. And so it won't disrupt metabolic systems. It'll go straight through the body. Okay. So that's the pika aspect. We for years couldn't understand what pika is. The latest um, articles that I've read, still not very many of them, but say this is the most likely reason. So again, you're not going to be wanting to eat, you know, off meat and, and you know, types of animal foods um, that are a bit sus. And I'm so, thinking that um, part of the reason is that uh, toxins can cross the placental barrier until a certain point. Or is that not true? Uh, I, I mean, they, they, can, they can get into the baby in many ways because, you know, they're, they're yeah, I mean, that's what they're designed for, <laughs> to damage our cells and get into them or else they're, they're mineral toxins, which, um, which, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to detoxify and get rid of and what we call chelate and, and conjugate. And so they'll be taken into other molecules and then peed out or go through the, the um feces and be lost without having upset metabolic sort of systems and things like that. Um, so, but we just don't want any of those at the moment. So then, so we've done PICA for usually sort of biological and some mineral natural toxins. And then we've got to look at what else do we eat? The huge problem with the toxins. So our industrial culture has really, really caused, well, actually, 
um, yeah, so I think that's probably what I'd like to just say about about um, about PICA and morning sickness of pregnancy and of early baby nutrition. So it's really important to have non-toxic, but really get those foods into your stores. You don't need that much, but you need to have time to have got enough of the right things. That's why I say the four months. And then you start, um, and, you, and then when you get into the after 14 weeks, you should start eating a healthy, um, you know, lots of nutrients, um, and you'll always have adequate energy these days. Um, and you need to be eating your, um, the things that people tend to get allergic to. Ah, on the immune side of things, if you're eating a wide variety of food and you've got a good immune system for both um, managing infections, um, I don't like to use the word fight and battling, but you know, managing infections and managing cells that haven't divided properly, in other words, that could become a tumour, so your immune system is good at that. That's why people who are well-fed with the high-nutrient, um, low-toxicity diets tend to have less uh, infections and less tumours and less of everything that's a problem. Um, so just getting back onto, um, onto um, those, those chemicals that we need, they are very good at detoxifying quite a lot of natural things. And if you've got them on board, you can detoxify more unnatural in other words man-made type of chemicals but you've got to look at what are the man-made type of chemicals and they fall into two classes really one is making something physical new that is robust chemically so it doesn't get broken down by lots of things including like sunlight teflon. sorry like teflon for example Yes, all those things, yes. So they're very robust against all sorts of physical yeah. insults. And yeah, you're right there? Yeah, just I yeah. banged my mouth and I was scratching my face. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Okay. And then the, the other ones that are then the, the try and they're what, we, what I, you could call in the broad sense xenobiotic. Basically, they're pretty toxic to all of life. And we spend an awful lot of effort and, and energy trying to kill off um, what, what we call pests and um, aberrant sort of, well, you know, pests right down to microbes, right up to, you know, trees that are growing in the wrong place. And so we're designing poisons to do this. So we've got very long-lived, robust physical types of chemicals that we make and um, that don't break down like rocks and just release minerals all the time. Some of which I have to say, some rock, of course, is quite toxic, but, you know, them's the breaks. In fact, can I just digress a little bit there? There's a, um, an, an article that just came out of, uh, yesterday, I think, or a couple of days ago, and it was summarized in, um, in Science or one of those journals saying that, oh, it looks as though we um, got quite a lot of toxins, um, metal toxins in fish. And they actually said, um, you know, in, the, in, in our prehistory times, evolutionary times, um, and you know, especially with the sea level going up and down, there were sometimes there'd be quite big releases of, of toxins into the fish. Um, and and um, so that's very controversial. It's all quite new. But one of the comments was, and probably with all the other fruits and veggies and um, plant food that we're eating, we were managing to detoxify these things. Yay. I've been waiting for that because that, I mean, there is other evidence, but it's nice to see that that even detoxifying um, some of the toxic um, minerals um, looks as though it's important to have these big sort of nuclear um, electron shuffler type chemicals that we get from our plants and other things. Anyway, so where were we going? Yeah, so 
with the toxins, we've got these nasty sort of um, very reactive, um, you know, um, types of chemicals that have been fixed into very robust things like Teflon. And then we've got all the other things to kill off all the other life as if we aren't made of an awful lot of life forms. And of course, this is where we start to see the, um, you know, the glyphosate, which doesn't actually so-called damage our cells, but an awful lot of our cells are microbes, which is just exactly what they're designed to do. So I think I wrote a talk in about 2015 about, you know, this, these are Trojan, you know, type um, chemicals because they come in on our plant food and then go down and damage our bacteria. And of course, and microbes um, down in our gut. And of course, once they're not working properly, then everything else, a lot of other things fall apart. So you can see that, um, so that these toxins are extremely problematic um, and long lived um, and, um, and really are now so pervasive um, that, you know, every time you breathe, you're actually taking some microplastics, for example. It's, you know, and um, every time you, you drink out of your water bottle, um, your plastic water bottle. So, and people who drink, who have a lot of water bottles actually seem to have a few hundred thousand more microplastics in their system than <laughs> not just water bottles, of course, and heat up plastics and things like that. So we really are beset, and it's not just us, it's all the microbes and animals around. And now all these toxins and things are all over the planet. But I just want to say something about, well, when did all this start? Well, actually, it started as soon as we started mining, really, I suppose, um, to some extent. But it wasn't until we started to make really complex chemicals that things got really severe. And I think once, once you know, in, in Europe where the Industrial Re uh, Revolution was starting to really take off and people were in these confined factories, no sunlight, eating poorly because they were poor, working these horribly long hours. I don't know how they survived. In fact, at one stage in the um, late 1800s, I think the average lifespan for city dwellers was 18, one eight, you know. You see these, um, um, I did a talk recently yeah. about, about paleo nutrition and talking mm. about lifespans. And I made the point that you did that mm. Mm. Um, typically, you know, averages are given for, uh, yeah. you know, the, population. the paleolithic yeah. where, Mm. You're probably talking about high infant mortality and um, mm. it's just a guess anyway. But yeah, that's right. Massive growth in life expectancy from the, the mid-19th century and it's remarkable, you know, it's, um, mm. it's uh, you know, it's gone up to 80 or so from, like you say, 20 or so. And mm. um, people think that's all about the, you know, the, the, the advances mm. of modern medicine, but I think no. what, you're, what you're starting to get at is we realise mm. that the, the the disgusting pollution in many ways mm. at that time mm. had to be curtailed, but it's only been curtailed up to a point, right? Yeah. Mm. So, so what what we were seeing, and and I mean, this is you know we've seen plagues um, back in the you know dark and middle ages and things like that and again these were people on very narrow diets now living in cities with no sunlight because vitamin d is very good uh, anti-microbial uh, in fact particularly oh gosh oh sorry okay. i just something by mistake i hope it didn't go um anyway so so and they were getting um stale and low quality high carb type food brought in and trying to subsist on on that um, and then this is in the, um, you know, in the, in the cities in Europe. 
Um, and so their health was, was, was appalling. Um, it's amazing that any of them, you know, that, you know, survived at all. And if you look at people who come out, you know, the, just the, in the museums in New Zealand, certainly in Christchurch, in the first four ships that sort of supposedly, you know, from the UK. Um, and and I, I mean, I've got, I'm a fairly small person, um, 155 or 54 now probably, centimetres high, and I've got fairly small feet. I, they're about half, they're, they're, they're foot, foot, you know, their lean tissue is just so small that none of their shoes what I've ever fitted in the woman, you know, woman, you can see in the museum, these little tiny shoes. So they really were extremely, um, uh, you know, you know um, malnourished and stunted anyway. So getting back to, to, um, on the infection side of thing, on the toxic toxicity side of things. So, um, we were now, um, get, adding in the, these, um, man-made chemicals, um, and, into industry and working conditions were appalling and food was terrible. Um, so it was amazing that people survived. But I think one of the things I want to say is that's also the beginning of when um, cardiovascular diseases and dropsy and in uh, a few of the wealthy and these sort of diseases um, um, and infections like you know TB were taking off and and. Um, and so I think that a lot of it was that they were eating very poor quality food and getting a lot of these toxins, which were so uncontrolled, basically pretty much until the sixties when Rachel Carson sort of um, started to really um, say that, you know, about silent spring and things, but just getting back to the recent discussion about the um, COVID-19 coronavirus um, that is worrying people, um, you know, the flu, the, uh, the flu in 1918, it took out a lot of young people, but who were the young people? And often the stats were mostly done on men and people in armies and things. They were starving men who had probably already been starting to work in the factories. Um, and they, their conditions during the war, they were smoking heavily, they were given cigarettes. Um, they were uh, exposed to a lot of toxic war um, uh, chemicals. Um, you know, the nerve gases and, and all the things that ran the machines, totally uncontrolled. And so, of course, a, a flu epidemic um, would take them out. In fact, starvation during war and has always killed far more of the people, starvation and, um, and deprivation. Um, and, of course, the, um, the civilians. Um, and that's been so well documented. And I disagree with people saying, oh, it was just, you know, to, in, in um, 1918, it was just there, and this has been said recently, their overactive immune systems, um, which were killing them off. I mean, we've been through all these things before. That's absolutely, I'm sorry, but it just does not sound plausible to me, to be very polite. Um, and, and, that, and then the remainder of those men who went on to, to work in factories, um, in, the, in middle America and who was highly studied with the Framingham studies and things like that, they, they um, I think that, you know, cardiovascular disease is toxicity at the arterial linings plus all the other organs and things and it's lack of good quality nutrients. And so you saw all these X from the, you know, people from the, um, the factories in the war in the, in the forties and fifties now dying of heart disease that not got the total, overload of really toxic things like um i suppose like um radioactive molecules those people died really quickly and various other chemicals killed people off really quickly but the ones that now are having a much more chronic effect and so cardiovascular disease was sort of stage one of that toxicity 
um, you know, with, you know the um, uh, the LDL, the low density lipoproteins, which is oxidized and then clogging up the arteries, plus so many other things, you know, clotting derangements and stuff like that, causing these um, this huge amount of um, of cardiovascular disease. And then, of course, we're still seeing the even the more sort of long uh, longer um, acting, but even perhaps less acute types of chemicals um, now resulting in, in a lot of cancers. Um, and these, you know, these are all stemming from this lifetime of less acutely, but increasingly, um, you know, not helpful for our metabolism. So, I um, mean, you know, cancers now are just, you know, everywhere, you know, people are expected now to be likely to get some sort of cancer during their lifetime in the, in the West. And unfortunately, of course, it's all, this is all telescoped in the poor countries, which have been press ganged into you know, very uh, low monitored um, industrial practices and mining and all these things, plus into the factories. Um, uh, and, and of course, they're getting all these things at an accelerated rate um, because most of the food now is, um, you know, wars have left whole areas decimated. They're growing ridiculous low nutrient cash crops. So we're going to see, you know, this is going to be, um, you know, it's pretty much, um, you know, a dire situation all round. So mm. we are going to expect to see more of these um, these viruses sort of skip across, you know, things which they've, you know, species which they've been doing for a long time. And how had the coronavirus, all, all our influenzas and things like that. I think influenza. I can't quite remember what's the adenoviruses, but they're all that that large family. And we'll just learn to most of us get over it, you know. Um, but some will die as they're already doing. I mean, I saw some stats the other day of the millions that die of influenza every year, you yeah. know, um, which was just, you know, we've just completely forgotten just because a few, well, dare I say sort of, you know, travelers have got one that they, um, they just haven't been, you know, that the population has been so used to, um, you know, a few years ago, there have just been a mass flu and we'd have had sort of a big, you know, um, flu epidemic that we wouldn't have known was a particular subtype that might have come from a particular crossing a few um, other species so i mean i think the best protection really is to be eating this wide you know clean micronutrient diet um but whilst of course that's very hard toxins. to find sorry whilst avoiding mm -hmm. toxins whilst avoiding toxins and so those are my two main platforms for um for um for nutrition is to have that just don't worry about the energy. You just have to have enough, mm. okay? But you need to really, the refined foods, and of course this, this takes into account all the grains which have been bred for oh, 10,000 years, um, and the white potatoes, and also the very unwell animals that have been bred for a long time. So you're very, um, you know, I mean, even now they're trying to feed grains to cattle and giving them ulcers and things. And their fat, of course, their whole meat, all their tissue is gonna be um, inflammatory. Um, it doesn't do very much work, you know, it's, um, pork's getting really pale now and chicken, of course, white breast of chicken, um, you know, my, my, don't even feed to your animals because there's hardly anything left in it except chemicals. <laughs> it's got no minerals because it doesn't do any work and it's fed poorly, it's fed supplements and stuff like that, which don't work any better in animals than they do in humans, really. So, um, we, there's a whole lot of our, um, but even our, our, our fruits and veggies, are being you know bred for um, all the time for one particular color, one particular taste, one particular shape. 
um, and stuff whether there are nutrients there left or not. And usually there's no taste and taste and color and um, fiber content uh, are all good markers, you know, so uh, this, is a, this, is a common, this is a common theme that, that comes up in a, a lot mm. of the stuff that you're saying, whether it's talking about mm. how we've progressed as humans culturally mm. and technologically, or whether it's about the food systems themselves. You mm. identify the march of technological advancement. Mm. And of course, mm. there's amazing benefits in um, quality of life in some ways, but you mm. identify the huge potential downsides and um, almost myopic uh, faith in mm. the march of technology I, yeah, yeah. I absolutely do and and I do want to talk about why that myopic faith has developed and, and those sort of things in a wee while but I think we we do need to understand that um, uh, that you know we it's only us sort of um, what we, what are we called weird the um, white European uh, independent, I don't know, you know, the, the main, main white t tend to be more Anglophone type groups. Um, you know, we think our standard of life um, improved. Actually, if you have a look at everywhere else in the world and in, the, in, the, in Africa and places like that, and, and the back, back areas of China and things like that, in fact, it's still now, instead of just improving, it's just got more pollution and there's been no real improvement. And in fact, if you talk to black people who have just, you know, in, in, in um, well, probably, you know, ethnic minorities and uh, indigenous peoples all over the world, they actually don't know what the fuss is about all this environmental stuff because in fact, nothing's changed for them. It's always been really tough. They've always had the worst food, the highest rate of addictions and things like that and, and the most enslaved and all these other things. So again, we, we really need to look to other literatures and other ways of expressing things. Um, and, um, you know, when I was in Australia for the last five years, I was watching the discussion about Aboriginal people and how they know the environment and how it knows them. And there's so much knowledge there that isn't in the written word. And it's not in a sort of so-called logical sequence. But then when you think about it, um, we there's a lot about the way we work that's not in a logical sequence. I mean, how do we recognize you? I mean, I've never seen you before today. Um, and, but if you, tomorrow, if you come up again on here, I'll say, oh yes, there's Ali. And I, I've seen him before. Um, and yes, I suppose I have had a long time looking at you, but, but the thing is the way that, we, that I know how to know your face is by integrating so many signals and so much learning that it looks instantaneous and there might be some sort of logic and things in there but it just feels intuitive that I know I'll know you tomorrow you know and it's because it's worked most of the time um, and so a lot of the way we think and organize things is we have huge amount of association going on in our massive brains which we actually might only use 11% at any one time, but that's absolutely ridiculous. If you don't have all the library back there, it's ridiculous. So um, we, we do need it all. Um, and, and so there are a lot of what seem to us like shortcuts. Like when we just walk down a, uh, an uneven path, we've got already three automatic things going. We've got stepping, and that's automatic and predictive. And we've got 
balancing and that's automatic and then we've got a bit of visual cues that just alter and, and modify you know with this you know don't stand on that rock no no and then um we might actually be looking for something on the side of the of the path that's actually where our brain is, is actually consciously thinking oh i'm trying to look for the new type of buttercup that somebody said was on this path so so much of that was all integrated and automatic you know people think you have to concentrate on driving actually that one once you have to, if you have to concentrate on driving, then that's a problem. You should be able to have most of it fairly automatic and um, so that you can actually look for the, the differences and things like that. It's remarkable, really. Um, have you ever read or seen Ian McGilchrist talk about his book, The Master and His Emissary? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm sorry. And he talks about, he's a psychiatrist mm. who, who's written oh. about the mm. left brain, right brain thing and mm. the, the kind of... Um, misrepresentation of mm. left brain right brain as kind of separate and so on he yeah. said no you need the left brain and the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain for almost everything mm. but what you we do. can say is that mm. the left brain can be described as um the sort of fixed focus the unrelenting mm. fixed focus of the center mm. of your attention and um mm. the right brain as what you were just describing as um, the lookout for all mm. the other uh, mm. patterns that may be useful to mm. you and almost mm. in a more um, a sort of a lateral joined up sense. But yes. it's difficult to pin mm. down, but that's the kind of rough thing. And I, and I was thinking about mm. that. I was thinking about the master and his emissary and the left brain, right brain thing um, when looking at your work because you talk about, um, and this this sort of, myopic faith in, 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 in technology sort of breeds into what you were talking about in the past along the, the lines of macho, um, gung-ho, yeah. um, yeah. sort of um, mm. muscle men type uh, mm. so-called advancement. And then on the other mm. hand, you've got a kind mm. of watchful, creative, maybe mm. more feminine energy uh, side of culture, which mm. can be dominated and underplayed in the end yes and i mean i think this goes back to and i'd like to touch back on to that the drives in the human brain um and actually just before i talk about the drives um it's very important to understand that mammalian evolution and particularly some of the higher order primates we have the most sophisticated way of evolving and with you know i'm sure you know about epigenetics where we have a whole lot of genes that control how genes are expressed and things like that. And they take a lot of informa information in from the environment. Um, and there, now we know there are a whole lot more, it's much more complicated than just epigenetics. It's um, you know, various other types of things. But it's very important to understand that our brains, and I read this first in about 2010, our brains are running on epigenetics the whole time. So that, that control, which we just thought was, you know, um, occasional when something changed from the environment that was serious, that's how our brains run. That's how they quickly take in something, uh, some information, and make a bit of a change to a, a, not just the whole cell, um, not the DNA, but the, how the DNA is expressing. And that's very, very quick. And that's how a lot of our, you know, our, our things are, are running and, and evolving so our brain is just full of evolving marks 
um, all over the place. So we've got, and it's, it's, it's um, a little, well, perhaps looks a little haphazard. When you look at the dopamine transporter, dopamine's a very old um, chemical that's been used for a lot of neural type signaling. Um, and of course, it seems to be in the pathway of all our addictions and drives, which I'll go into in a bit. In a bit. Um, but that's got, for certain parts of the brain, the transporter is a certain type of genetics, you know, runs it, looks like a different molecule from one in another part of the brain doing something else. So the transporter itself is, is, is evolving and changing. And so humans are extremely polygenetic. Um, and it's amazing we work as well as we do. Um, and, and, you know, have, have evolved as far as we have. Now, I just want to go into, I think there are three main things as the, for humans. There's the requirement for a strong drive to get energy because we've got a brain that takes so much, but it's also nutrients. We do need this wide variety of micronutrients and um, to, to run everything. And the last thing, before I go on to that drives, I'd just like to say that, and this is very relevant and probably where I really start to get into the whole area of looking at obesity, I'm um, getting you back to that, is that in fact, humans are unusual, and, and it's against the metabolic reason, is that um, the, the type of fat distribution, and fat is not just energy stores in lipid form, it's all the other nutrients. Where do you think all the breast milk and nutrients come from and the baby nutrients? It's in, it's in tissue-like fat, which can sort of store it and release it when needed. So we, and because of our big brain, we need a big buffer. Unlike other animals, you know, 24 hours a day, our brain, and especially in, in new infants, it's a ridiculous amount, like 70, 80% of the energy is, is, is going through the brain, okay? And its functions is it's starting to learn very quickly. Even at five years of age, we think about 50% is still going to the brain, okay? And that's probably why we grow really slowly is because we've always got to keep this big blob going day and night, you know, it dreams and organizes all night as well. It's not just stopping. Um, so to keep this brain going energy-wise and nutrient-wise, we need a buffer but we're starting to get a buffer. It isn't complete, but you'll see certainly um, women who are going to be feeding and you know, gestating a baby, um, they have got usually hip and thigh fat in most cultures, which that's the first thing to, to put weight on. That's why your genes don't fit as soon as you get pregnant. Um, but some people have got, and this is a subcutaneous safe, usually lower body, but actually it's peripheral. It can be on the back of your arms and things. That safe fat is, rather polygenetic. So some families have heaps, some individuals in one family have heaps in potential and others don't. Um, and it's, um, and it's, its expression, its distribution is still rather variable. Um, and as you can see, some humans can have hundreds of kilos of this peripheral fat. And it's basically fairly, um, fairly neutral metabolically which is why people can get to hundreds of kilos um, and and not have died of heart disease so this peripheral fat and all its nutrients is, is a really good buffer for humans not all of us have it um, and yeah, we, some of us have um, toffees you know thin on the outside fat on the inside that's right they don't have it i mean i've got stick-like legs and arms and um, that's the genetics of my mum and my dad and things but we all have huge, you know, 
you know, potential. Uh, well, well, actually, all humans can get metabolically get that metabolic fat around their organs, no matter where they come from. And actually, all animals can. So you see dogs with metabolic syndrome and the big bellies and other animals. But the ones who have the safe peripheral fat um, are patchily spread around, um, and they're the ones who are given a really hard time. But that is genetic. They're what I call. Um, um, Oh, sorry, it's just something off there. Um, they're what I call the, the, the gatherers, the ones who don't need to do high impact and they shouldn't do high impact activity, um, but they should, uh, and they, they um, are quite safe with not doing it, but often they have quite a lo lot of lower limb fat anyway, and it's not very easy for them to do, you know, a lot of locomotive type physical activity. They're usually very good lifters and carriers, as I said. And then there are the rest of us who um, don't have very much and we have to, run to keep fit we have to be physically fairly um you know intensely active to keep our all the to mobilize all those nutrients that we're eating hopefully um and but we tend to get the the general lack of nutrients for our species and extra um, ectopic fat distribution um as soon as we don't eat well and keep physically fit um and most other mammals don't have much subcutaneous fat there's always the you know, the, the hibernating bears, and they do, and also the ocean-going um, uh, big cetaceans, the whales and, um, and those types of um, and seals and things. Um, and they have the safe fat, which actually, get, again, they can live on for months and they can feed their babies completely on that without eating. So we do need to understand that different sorts of metabolism and stop judging people and using the terrible, just, just oh, another article I just saw, using BMI. It's not just inaccurate, it's, it's, got, it's totally contradictory. So those people who have the safe um, peripheral fat, which can be quite a lot, and certainly more in some ethnic groups than others, and some you know, like black people tend to have more on buttocks, whereas the white people tend to have more on their thighs and down their legs and things. Um, that that is, um, is completely having an opposite effect from the central fat. So that's quite protective, even on men. Fat on your legs as men is actually quite protective. And most men don't have that much, sadly. Um, so, so it's not only just inaccurate, it's, it's false. You know, it's misleading. And, and we, the sooner we stop using it, the better. And everyone just says, oh, well, everyone's got it measured and things. And it's, it's, it needs to just leave the lexicon and the whole research area, um, as does a lot of animal modeling for, metabolomic, for metabolics and stuff like that. So we really need to look around the middle and be sensible. And we need to tell women that they're not mean and stupid and um, bad people for getting this distribution because, of course, it's picked on mostly in women where it perhaps is a little more common. Um, and, um, and I spend a lot of time telling them it's genetic. The first thing you need to do with your diet is get that good diet for the usual four months. You've heard that before. Um, and get rid of the, the refined carbohydrates and refined fats and oils, seed oils and things, um, and get onto a, a comfortable type of diet so you can still have you know, sugars and your dried fruit and your fresh fruit, but again, with skins and seeds, da-da-da. Um, but if you really want to lose that fat um, that's in your periphery, then you do have to do a bit of a starvation healthy diet. And when, you, when that's gone, you might have to stay on what you actually, the last diet you were on. And it's no good just losing it with, um, with shakes and things like that because you, you deprive yourself of your nutrients. Um, and that's a, um, you know, quite a, a big problem. Um, but on that topic,
just about longevity in animals that are starved of, of energy, um, I think what actually is happening is in fact, um, the reason why they seem to do better for a while is you're recycling a lot of inside cell nutrients. Mm -hmm. So you're for yeah. anything from yeah. nematodes to mice mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. restricted in their calories over their lifespan yeah. and seem to have a longer lifespan. That's right. And that's just because you're, um, you're proportionately, you've got more nutrients for your body mass and your cells. And so you're using those. And don't forget, as I said, we do recycle a lot of our enzymes and our nutrients. And especially those animals can do the autophagy. You know, we don't even, they don't even leave the cell. Mm. You know, the dying yeah. parts of the cells. That's right. And so, of course, to begin with, but if you try and do a low calorie diet on an animal that's sick and not well fed, like you've got rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, they don't do so well. Mm. Yeah. So it's really important. And again, of course, if you've eaten well at some stage of your life, then you're a bit, bit better off. Um, but um, as I said, actually, you can manage that extra energy and just do more repair work. So really, energy falls out of the equation often. You know, it becomes just, you know, non-sequitur. It doesn't follow when you look at proper metabolism. And this feeds into mm. kind of a bind that we're in now, where year-round mm. we have... If we, if we have a, a reasonable income, we should have access to enough energy and enough micronutrients. Mm. So even if we're dialed in doing that kind of diet, it maybe doesn't reflect uh, certainly Northern European ancestry, where there maybe would have been um, much more food in the summer and autumn and then periods of relative starvation. Now, do you yeah. subscribe to the idea that in those days, we would have put on a bit of fat for the winter and lived it lived Oh, absolutely, yes. And have if a look we at, did yeah. do that, then what should we do now? Well, I mean, I think the thing is that you try and do with what your life gives you. So at the moment, um, we, we, we do store food and, um, you know, we, we can um, bottle and dry and all those types of things. Um, so I think we should keep doing the storing because we can't store all of it on our bodies. Um, but um, I think that also, if you actually have a look at, um, I think it's Richard Johnson, he's talking about uric acid and vitamin C and how when the fruit are ripe, um, high nutrient fruits, so there's lots of nutrients as well as they're ripe, actually become somewhat insulin resistant and your uric acid, um, uh, no, I just got to get around the right way. I think that, drops a bit and your vitamin c there's le there's less vitamin c in really ripe fruit so it all conspires to make you gain that fat and nutrients don't forget that um in the in the in the in the you know the fruiting season um uh, which you know can be the rainy season or the dry season or hot or cold whatever wherever you're living um and so you you can gain more but the trouble is that we we're going to talk about about drives to eat soon and our drives to eat are no longer um, drives to eat and all the other things and the technologies we make. Um, we're no longer um, in that, usually in that environment. Um, I have to say, um, you caught me this morning and as, as I was just um, taking the last dried fruit out of, <laughs> out of the oven and putting them in the bottle um, and, and those sort of things. So, um, you know, I do still think that we should be, um, you know, trying to preserve. And, and the reason why is because where I live, luckily, there's a whole lot of trees that have gone wild, fruiting trees, and they grow very well here. So they're all wild, unsprayed types of, um, of fruit. Um, 
and nuts actually they're coming on um so but that's i mean i've just got that absolute luxury of just living in this this place most of us don't but we still can try and get you know clean wild food we still need to we must do that uh, and, and need to be clean so yes um it, it is uh, if you're still in that environment you can do that but the trouble is our drives to eat have been um altered so um yes in the past we should have just eaten all the food fruit that we could off the trees as i've been eating a fair bit recently and i've been storing it outside and probably inside the body a bit um, but um, we're now living in a different environment where we can store things um, in different ways and we, how much, um, how active are we really in summer, you know, to counter the inactivity in winter and all those types of things. So, um, you know, as the Scandinavians might say, there's no bad weather, there's just not good enough clothes and preparation. <laughs> so um, so I think you've got to look at that, but I certainly don't think you should say, oh, I'm just going to do what, what we did in the old days and it's a different environment, you know. So we have to do metabolically what we need from the old days, but um, as much as we can, but we can't do everything. Um, and just harping back onto really trying to leave indigenous people's environments alone and not convert them into our terrible ways of sort of industrial farming and things. So I'd like to just talk now a wee bit if I could and get onto the drives and how that affects our technology and our whole living type thing. So as I said before, we are cultural beings now and have been for some um, many hundreds of thousands of years and that's enough time to do a bit of evolution. So we're driven to get high energy food on its energy content that's an easy thing we recognize that we've got taste sweet taste receptors and bitter actually all the way through our gut okay not not just in our mouth so even though we actually don't like the taste of starch we know how to do dolly it up with something else that tastes nice and really hoe into it okay that could be fat and salt and other things um so we we've got this tremendous drive and that part of the brain for drive sex you know getting other you know shelter and being sociable social and things like that they're now expanded and very powerful okay um and they you know when we humans have got a, a habit of having some sort of dream that can be quite unreasonable um and then just pursuing it even until they die so it might be perfectly reasonable and there's a, a good base reason, but often it looks a bit unreasonable, like you know, people who collect things and it's not actually a real reason they don't need to collect them, but it probably harks back to collecting food or something in the past anyway. So we've got this tremendous drive and we know that it's a little unstable still. And for things that are very refined or exactly what we think we want, we can become addicted. Now, all humans are on this line. And all humans are basically, in my view, addicted to sugars and starchy things, and especially combinations of starch and fat and a few tastes and salt. Okay. So that was very useful in the past. You know, we did a lot of salt trading and things. And in fact, there's a cardiologist and I didn't hear him, but I heard of him who was saying salt is not the big problem. I agree. In healthy people, salt is not a problem. I eat plenty of salt. It's my fairly tart sort of types of food. Um, and I encourage women to give their babies a little bit of salt to make their savory things a little bit more palatable. Um, and in fact, that's always been the trouble with salt studies is that they're looking at a metabolic syndrome group who are, who are sick and, and they're 
hormones and their cortisols are all wrong anyway and the kidneys aren't working very well and salt's not going to be terribly helpful especially if it doesn't come with all the nutrients it should do however if you're um, you know, healthy, um, then in fact, we need a lot of salt. And there's some very hot countries. We use salt for sweating. So we do need a lot and the other minerals and salts as well. Be that as it may. So back onto the addictive type foods. Um, of course, once we started language and we could talk to ourselves, we could talk to others. Then we started having sequential thoughts and create, some of us started to have creative thoughts. Why do we start having creative thoughts? Why don't we just do what was intuitive? And I want to talk about that, but I just want to understand that a lot of our brain for all of us can easily get into addictive pattern. Okay. Some people tend not to, but most people um, can. And basically those types of food that the markets marketeers market all the time is pretty addictive. Um, and they know that sells. So that's the trouble with addictions is they, you get out of control. You want more. We all know what addictions are. Um, and they become habits and you discount them intellectually. You don't, you don't examine them. And basically, if you want to manage your habits and your addictions, you basically need help from somebody else or have an extremely strong set of rules to observe. Okay. So, um, but that has just been discounted in, in diet for a long time, although there's now an extremely good uh, literature on that both physiologically you know image you know the um functional mris and all these types of things we know the food but of course it's being downplayed all the time by certain industries um we know it for alcohol we know it for drugs we know and we know what what has to be done and um how to to manage it um but it remains it's always egged on by our society um, and so is a huge problem and is, is the beginning of a lot of our, you know, health problems because the addictions just take over. And of course, they're worse with stress and social oppression, all those types of things. Um, I talk to my patients about this and try and say, please don't feel guilty. This is the human condition. We're all on the continuum. Um, I'm as guilty as you. I'm sure I've had eating disorders when I was a teen and, um, and, and, start over exercising and doing all sorts of things as one does when you think about these things um we're all in a different sort of area um so we've got to live with that but learn how to make it not damaging however these drives as i said also make us imagine and think of amazing things to do some of which are to help our social group some of which are to help us individually um, and some which um, we can convert into um, uh, you know how to make that thing happen and then invent some amazing things to get there but these addictions have a downside and this is where I want to go back to look at at other pack animals and this is really important for why we have technologies and things so I am getting there but pack animals they're intelligent higher order mammals have to cooperate um, to some extent and they have to do things together to really succeed. Now, there are certain pack animals which tend to do it by power structures and there are others, like there are some bonobos, I think that um, have this, they're quite sort of, um, uh, you know, gentle, they're not aggressive, but they have these amazing sexual sort of hierarchies and characteristics and practices that are seemingly quite bizarre um, and probably have a, a power effect as well so 
it's not always physically aggressive or you know um so so these drives can express themselves in different ways however i'm going to look at the more aggressive pack animals because i have to say I guess we're humans but in my view um so we have um um a lot of pack animals which have a macho physically strong male usually male because they're physically stronger usually um leaders and they um are very good at any aggressors who come into the environment they are um they're very aggressive to either same species or other species um invaders and they um they are very good at um pressing other members of the tribe to also fight for them rather than with them i have to say and the reason why i say rather than with them is actually these types are actually driven by self-interest and that self-interest um may be protective for the tribe but actually it may often not be very protective it may keep them alive for a while but they're also aggressive to their underlings so they tend to attract to them ones who have been pressed into service or bribed into service or ones who are competing with them and trying to get their top job okay um don't say you've uh, i don't suppose you've ever seen this happen at all no, of course, mm -hmm. we see it in humans all the time. Um, watching the, the TV but, show Narcos at the moment, and it reminds oh, me very much yeah. of yeah. The, mm. the Mexican guy in charge of the cartels in the 80s, mm. um, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Right. I vaguely heard of that, yes. But the thing is, so yes, I mean, we see it on the Sopranos and all that sort of yeah. thing, you know, the top dog. And they're physically usually imposing, but also they can be just very good psychological manipulators. And, um, and they, as you said, yes, yeah. often charming, often to start with anyway, they're very charming and very persuasive and seemingly care about you. They certainly know about the gamut of human emotions um, as, you know, and they're, but they're very narcissistic and self-centered, okay? So they have always been around. You see them in, in, in um, wolf packs. You see them in the um, in the orcas. You see them in the um, in probably in elephants as well. Although usually the males aren't in the herds most of the time. Anyway, so well, when you've got an intelligent being like a, a whale, um, then you and they're being pressed on the whole time by these aggressive people above or people. I mean, animals, whatever. Males often machos. I call them machos because it doesn't have to be a, a male. Mm -hmm. um, they they um, are um, being pressed on by these um, other controllers. And so they start, because now they're intelligent, they start to think, how can I get past this? How can I get away? So they start to organize and think about, well, perhaps if I work with some of the others, we can work out a way of getting out of the way. And so you'll see some big um, female whales and they'll go with small young that are being har harassed by the, the the big males they'll go and swim in the shallows with their small ones to get out of the way they work out this is how i can escape he can't get over there they're starting to think and that's a really logical type of pattern he can't fit over there i can i can go and have a rest with my little one okay and then so and and so that's a sort of a logical way of managing it but then you can also get a subtle 
communication with your other group. Not all of them. There's always going to be some who don't really get it and just follow. But if you can learn how to communicate on a level that the macho individual doesn't understand, and he already doesn't understand logic because they've used it before, but he doesn't. He understands self-interest. Um, let's try and learn how to communicate so that macho leader won't know what we're doing. So let's have a system of dance, music, da-da-da-da-da, and communicate in a way that isn't, you know, very simple, you know, language. So one group is going to do the logical and they gradually get more scientific type of thinking and how we can help our whole tribe, not just that one at the top, but let's do some little bit of technological envisaging and actually we can even make it now. And the other group is more the communicative ones and they work really quite well together, you know? And, um, but of course, if the, if the macho leader gets wind of this, then of course um, he's totally ruthless and extirpates them, you know, tries to get rid of them. So now we have this um, social hierarchy um, of these very aggressive leaders um, who are competing with the other ones who are trying to get there, or they've got quite a lot of psychophants. If I do the right thing, you'll love me. Of course, never does, but you know. Um, and then we've got these two sort of intelligent, let's work around it type groups. And but by definition, the macho leader will not understand these underlings, just know they're a threat. That's all he needs to know. And by definition, unfortunately, most of these. Um, of these, you know, artists, you can hear the communicators of the artists and the scientists and logicians and the thinkers, they were both thinkers, but you know, the more logical ones, philosophers, um, they're not really very good leaders. They can get together enough to be cooperative, but they're not very, they're not really very good persuasive leaders. Okay. Oops. Where have we seen this before? But of course that leader up the top, he can see a good thing when he sees a good thing. So he can see these technologies, okay? He pretty much leaves the arts alone. But the technologies he can co-opt, and he can co-opt those perhaps more courtesanal type scientists to make them for him and pay them and bribe them and stuff, or threaten them, of course. Um, so then, of course, the technology starts to, um, starts to take off in a way that's going to usually... Sovereign starts off being quite... Um, uh, altruistic or just blue skyish, you know, just want to do it. Oh, I've worked out how to do it. Um, and then it tends to get co-opted into, you can guess what, um, things for me, luxury things, and unfortunately, war machines. So that is a huge problem. So, but there has been, even back in those pack animals, there has been a solution. Because some of the females who are probably a bit in both camps, you know, a scientist and, or a logis, logistician, how do you say, and an artist and working, can work with people um, who's finished breeding, done all that, experienced everything, managed to survive, and is now very aged, but fit, you know, she's been strong, and she is, and they don't always have to be she's, okay, um, but this, these individuals now are very experienced, know the ways of the world, 
but what else do they know? They've had to survive in the environment. They are, and they've often been the breeders, so they know about biology of surviving. You know, you had to get food for your little ones. You had to do this and that. You had to know where the food was. Okay, so these are, and you can hear what they're going to be called, ecofeminists. Okay, the matriarchal ecofeminists, and they are very, very, you know, very important. They know everything going on in the tribe. Once they don't have offspring at foot, they're strong, intelligent. And when there's an ecological crisis, where will they be? At the front. They'll have just wiped across the, um, these macho power mongers who can't, you know, who don't understand about logic and truth and all these things. And they take, and these are the matriarchal elephants, they'll walk hundreds of kilometers leading their tribe, because they're old, they've done it before, you know, into a better place for better food. They're the orca females who have a true menopause, by the way, mm. and they will take the tribe. They will have trained younger females and looked after their grandchildren, trained them and taught them, and they will be taking them to the fields and uh, to the, you know, better uh, hunting grounds and things. And we're waiting for them now. <laughs> So seriously, and when you actually have a look at ecofeminist literature, which I've only just started to look at, um, and don't forget, people like um, uh, Mandela was probably a feminist, an ecofeminist type. You know, he could see the whole thing. So it doesn't have to be. He, he went through really tough times, obviously. Um, so it's really important that we don't just see this, but he did understand the whole ecology of humans and poor people and things like that. Um, yes, it worked for a while. He didn't resort to violence. They don't usually need to. Um, but you can see that, and you can see obviously all people have a little bit of everything in them, except I think these male or these macho power addicts probably don't have very much. Um, you can't see, I can't see anything in Trump that really has anything. He understands it when he's aggrieved, you know, but he can't empathize with anybody else or anything like that. Well, so it I think, reminds me of the kind of um, stories you hear of uh, mm. a council of elders. So yeah. people who mm. aren't interested in making children anymore. And mm. um, I mean, I suppose guys yeah. could be until they're quite old, but generally mm. I think of a council of elders, maybe, maybe in the Hebrides mm. or uh, in Native American culture or, mm. um, you know, Aboriginals in Australia, and mm, yeah, probably that's a right. Mixture of a mixture of men mm. and women who are doing the kind yeah. of thing that you're talking about. It's a yeah, it's a kind mm. of um, softer, more uh, wise yeah. approach. That's right. Action. Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and but you do have to be open to thinking about it with our um, education system and things. Um, we do the arts for entertainment and things but we don't actually use it to help us all often you know we well i mean the social i suppose social theory and things like that is but it gets soon sort of written down and codified and things like that whereas some of this stuff is really you know feeling what an intact ecology is like and how to work with it and things and working with things and stuff like that um so it's um, but you sometimes just see things in a completely different way. You just, um, 
somehow it's, it doesn't fight against this. As I said, I don't like using the word battling and fighting. You've got to sidestep it and move around it and, you know, and, 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 and um, just come in from an unexpected direction, if you know what I mean. Um, although it's actually because we know quite a lot about biology now, but you'll see this all over in, in biology, all these sort of ways of managing the environment. And, um, and so sometimes there's, there's battles between sexes, but sometimes there's hardly anything to see between the difference, you know. Sometimes it's the males like seahorses that are, you know, it just, it, it, it's, you know, it's, there's no one clear definition. And that's what we've got to expect in eco-feminist ways of solving things. But we do need to, um, to be understanding and trying to get the environment, um, you know, sort of going back to traditional farming, but actually not just restorative farming, but regenerative farming. We need to know what was there and what will work on that area, mm. you know, and try and get it to, and, and, you know, quite a lot of nature can detoxify itself to some extent, you know, it's just watching post Chernobyl. It's amazing how some individuals seem to be going back into, you know, living and using the land as it was and growing and some things are surviving and um, there seems to be an ecology that's going again. It'll never be quite the same. Um, and I'll have very weird um, genetics to manage the, uh, the radiation, but some even mammals seem to be doing it. And, and mammals, again, um, the way we evolve and the speed and the techniques, and it is absolutely amazing. I mean, we don't just wait for mutations to happen. We put things together that might make that work in a different way. So actually mutations in humans, um, random ones are no longer the force. And we've got an enormous reservoir of all these past things. You know I mean? The fact that humans are going back to some of them developing peripheral fat again, this time not for insulation or for, um, or for, um, for food reserves, but more for, or not just for energy reserves, but for keeping a certain organ going, you know? Um, so, you know, that, and, and, and we're the only mammal that actually has pre-birth um, fat reserves. And not all of us, you know, so some of us still have skinny little babies, um, but um, some babies are, are already chubby with the subcutaneous little rolls of fat around their, their wrists and things. Um, so, and that's a great buffer for brains, you know, yeah, and, and you, so they're, they're perfectly healthy. Sorry? You can burn loads of ketones in there. Well, yes, but I mean, ketones, I, I think ketones are overrated, really. They're just part of a way of metabolizing energy. You don't want to eat ketones. You only want to make them from other things, sure. really, sure. because, um, you know, they, um, you know, they, they'll be just, I mean, you shouldn't really need to be in ketosis very often because you'd have got your efficiency, your fat metabolism efficiency so good that you actually, um, um, you know, you just use them up quickly and you're not breathing them out anymore, which is rather a waste really, you know, to breathe out ketones. Um, so um, it's only if you're going to and fro or fairly acutely starving, if you're sort of rather chronically low on energy, um, but you're using it from all sorts of other sources, um, then I don't know whether you really are in ketosis. Hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, but, but but I mean, perhaps perhaps one just can't smell them anymore or something like that. But I mean, it is a bit of a waste to lose too many of them. Yeah, in my view.
So, so I think to try and solve some of these things, we've got to go back to, you know, and the science that looks at nature and things. I mean, I love science. I mean, obviously how I got here to even be thinking about this is thinking logically, pulling things together, trying to see if it's cohesive, going back to first principles, you know, um, yeah, we're not suddenly going to get a, a retina with, with vessels on the back. They're always going to be on the front because, you know, that's a big ask to suddenly change it just because, you know, octopuses have got a better system. Um, but we make do with it unless it's really not good enough. And then, then we slowly change, you know, we're not going to suddenly have a, a fifth arm or anything like that. But there's an awful lot of amazing things. You know, you look at a bat and, um, and, uh, and, and a whale and they're using sonar. I mean, look at their morphology. It looks completely different, completely different environment. But somewhere there were genes in that, in that hearing system that, that um, went off and, oh, got to adapt to this. Oh, yep, okay, I'll just move this around a wee bit and we've got these, you know, da-da-da. Obviously not consciously, but, you know, it just happened to work. But it was always a lot of things working together. They don't, they don't, they co-evolve. They don't, they're not correlated. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, you know, because you had one, then it meant the next thing would evolve. They were evolving together and then they worked together well. So they kept on, you know, going that way. So, um, so I think we've got to look back to biology, um, but we've really got to, um, got to manage the, the types who wage war on, on pride and who make, you know, industries, oppressing people in the environment to to get something they you know more power more social power so this i think that's why i call them macho power addicts they're you know they're they really are that's all they can see and they're just so persuasive and um they look as though they've got such a simple answer and things but they're wheeling and dealing and not not doing us any good and um and they get into all sorts of things so an awful lot of nutrition scientists don't really oh, yes, we'll just get some money from some big industry or another um, and we can, you know, we'll make it do what we need. But it never does. It always gets somehow or other converted into what they want, you know. So, yes, you've just investigated some cereal and shown that, you know, we can add more protein and then it will be a high-protein cereal and therefore it will be good, you know. The, the, the lack of logic and the fake science and pseudoscience, I'm afraid, in medicine where so much of it's commodity technology or commodity tech, as I sometimes call it, um it's just leading um in, in, in not a good way um Isn't so i think how yeah. the, you know the the theories that you've come up with have uh co-evolved if you like with uh, the mm. ian gilchrist ones because it's so similar to mm. the um, mm. left brain right brain thing that he talks about where the left brain mm. um creates a system of rules and um uh, objectives mm. which mm. they can show to be right but only because they've created the system in order to that's right and that's the right word to use they've created it so there had to be something which took a leap of faith you know i mean we have little quantum leaps of faith yeah. as we create things and i mean really when we desire something we then make a reason for why you know yes. so we tend to have these desires so i think the, the thing is, no no so so that's and we've become very good at at um uh What's oh, there's a word for it? Um, where you are rationalizing things. Yeah. Um, so, so you've really, you know, if you are somebody who's really trying to think about theories, you've got to know yourself and, you know, to, and also understand these drives and things. Um, and and where you're becoming, sorry, and your limits. Yes, that's right. And I mean, so, um, 
you know, I think it's, it's, I think if you have the left and right brain, you also have the front brain where you've got these drives. Um, well, that's the part of the cortex that knits in with the, with the lower part of your um, mesolimbic system. Um, so that interchange going up from the, the basic drives up into the frontal cortex, where you're supposed to be able to feel things and be a bit logical. In fact, the, there is serotonin up there, so you can do something with thinking about your moods, but I'm afraid there's not the, you know, the, the drive to get something, does, that does not come up to rationality. Okay, so that's why we can be the most intelligent person and be totally out of control with our addictions because yeah. they're just there's no logic there's no no interplay and that's why you need a, a third party somebody to help you with your addictions or right. some other thing and i mean that that they really um and, and and i'm afraid power addicts um they extinguish themselves or they um they're, they're cut off at the knees somehow or other and so you cannot expect to rationalize or teach them or anything like that. So, um, and, yeah, and, and they won't stop and they'll just get worse and worse. And um, who was it? Um, it was in Burns. Ken Burns, who did a whole lot of American... Yeah, the documentary maker. Re- documentaries, yes. Well, he said in 2016, I think it was, because I just saw this recently, so I haven't got a really good memory. Um, and he said, oh, he's just going to do it in a Hitler-esque way. Um, well, a lot of us have been saying, yep, since that time, you know, that's, that's where it's going to go because he's a power addict. You cannot teach him. And he can't, by definition, can't understand scientists and artists unless he can convert them into his own, own um, you know, comfort and power. Um, and some of us are not very good leaders, um, you know, and we occasionally you get the Gandhis and the, and the um, um, uh, oh, I just even said his name before. Um, Mandela. Yeah, and Mandela. Sorry, I was just leaving them. So, sort of, um, getting old. Um, so the, the you know those and and there actually have been more women ones than you think, but they've not been so well examined by history. So there's quite a few now. There's a bit more of a push to look at women, <clears throat> you know, creative leaders and thinkers. Um, and there's some whole programs looking at them. So there are some very very um, powerful ones, um, often behind some of the well-known men as well. So I'm not just trying to say women, I'm trying to say, you know, feminist type of people who can see the big, bigger picture and happen to have been female. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very important not to confuse male and macho and female and, and, and feminist um, because, you know, it's, it's not about that. It's not about just demonizing an, another just because of, you know, genetic sort of accident sort of thing. It's about really what they're capable of thinking about. So, so I mean, a lot of technologies I think are great, but I mean, I see far too many in the medical world and the nutrition world, which are, are all to make money, you know, yeah. commodity technologies. And they're not, they're, not, they're not rational and scientific. You know, they, you know, it's really a shame, I think, to see in public health, which you'd think would only about, be about people and not about technologies. And the biggest funded technology that I see uh, um, public health areas is the, um, is the body monitoring technologies and phone feedback things, you know, because somebody's making money out of the technology that's going with it. Is it really actually helping people? You know, um, does it really matter to know how far, you know, your heart rate goes up? Well, a few extreme people who like gadgets will, will might want to know and that's okay. Um, but 
the people who really need to know are just trying to actually get enough, you know, get, get the wolf off their back, you know, metaphorical ones. Um, and, um, and have got so few resources and are so put upon. It's, um, you know, it's very, you know, it's very difficult. So we can't leave people behind. Um, well, I don't think we should, um, but it's still not really changing anytime fast, but I think it can. And I think as soon as, um, you know, as some of the big technologies are, are going to be, um, you know, ho hopefully that they will, you know, the small un underground movements, which won't be small once a, tech a big technology giant starts to say, no, we've actually got to have lots and lots of little farms with really good variety of animals and plants, which have always been on the land and try and use, as I said before, the eco-restorative type farming, um, you know, people say, oh, it's too expensive. We won't be able to feed the world. Well, actually, if you took all those wheat belts away, um, then everyone would be able to tighten their belts and they wouldn't have metabolic syndrome, you know. And, uh, I'd like to, and this, I really would love to have a team who I can get to model these things and, you know, yeah. if they thought this was worthwhile, because I'd like to model the metabolism using the, the dynamic energy budget. I'd like to m model you know, the, and it has been done actually to some extent, the energy flow um, and the nutrient flow all at once. That's what I like to do with the dynamic energy budget um, with humans. We have to make, make a, a few, um, on the physiological side, a few adaptations for women having menopause. Mm. And um, anyway, I won't go into that, but that's a whole interesting sort of area. Is it, is it a state of, stage of gen degeneration or is it a whole half of a life that's just different? You know, um, well, I love the sound so, of the uh, energy budgeting and the the, um, oh. the 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 you know work working that out would be incredible. I know. Um, yes. I, I did a yeah. I did a very crude poster using it, just saying it would have to look at that. But the science and the actual mathematical modelling, which I really would love to be able to do, but can't. Um, but I'd really love to to say to people, this is what you need to model. You know, and then this will make sense. And the energy won't be such a big issue. As I said, it falls out of the equation once you've got all the things that allow the energy to be used in a certain way. You know? so, um, but, and that, that all can be done. It's just you've got to do that with the human drives at the same time. You've got to do that with understanding fat metabolism in humans. I mean, your peripheral um, fat store metabolism. Um, the economies of of how we actually are so efficient how we have such a wonderful immune system if we don't destroy it with chemicals and all these types of things you if you move forwards in one area you've got to look behind you and say oh is the rest coming you know does this make sense with our drives or does this make sense with um with you know um like you know with, with the uh, fat distribution does this make sense with the type of nutrients or the things that we can detoxify you can't leave one of them behind because then you'll trip yourself up, which is what we've done. And evolution never does that or it doesn't work. You know, we wouldn't be here now, you and me, if all the trips had left and we're still here. Something, possibly a bit of a fair bit of luck, but also enough works to make us be here. Um, I've worked well enough to just manage having a couple of kids um, and, you know, so, um, and haven't died yet sort of thing um, or got too sick yet. I will soon, I'm sure. Um, but, 
you know so there's an awful lot that's made that possible huge i mean it's all of evolution really you know um how can we sniff at that how can that not be the base that we start with for nutrition can't you start with evolutionary nutrition and see what it relates to and see how our how our metabolic system works and you know um why is it so hard well it's so hard because it doesn't make money it's blue sky science it's social science um that it would serve so we've got to use this science not for how can we monetize it how can we paratize it or whatever you want to say paratize poweratize um you know, these, these sort of things um, and, and it's great it's just the biology is so wonderful and it's so exciting and human artists are the depth is just unfathomable you know it's amazing what we can do in the science thinking but if we get up into our little you know little pinnacles in a big field where none of the tops are uh, connected and in fact they haven't been relevant to the bases of the other pinnacles for a very long time you're getting up into ridiculosity you know just yeah. And the amount of resources that go into cancer research when we just had to eat the right things and do a bit of exercise. Um, and the minutiae, I mean, to me, I just see it as, oh, that's sort of interesting blue sky stuff um, because it's just going to be so inapplicable, but it might just have found something interesting, but probably not applicable, you know, to anything much, you know, just like studying um, how animals work, you know, how do bees manage to fly? Well, they've got a figure eight pattern with their wings. For years, we didn't think the science would tell us how they flew, but now we know. But what are we going to do with it? Good, just knowing it's enough and knowing that bees exist, bumblebees exist sort of thing. Um, well, I and love, then, uh, I love the, the kind of joined up way that you think about it. And I feel like we've come full circle in the discussion. And yeah. Started yeah. with, uh, you know, the basics of um, what makes evolutionary um, hmm. approach to human nutrition and how it takes us through to the modern day and um, hmm. our culture and our similarities with animal culture hmm. and how that leads us back to looking at evolution again hmm. and um, it's, it's maybe a good place to stop just because we've done yeah. that full circle. Oh I know, I'm, yeah, no, I'm sure and I've been waffling on for a long no, time. So. No, it's been absolutely <laughs> but, brilliant to hear your thoughts on it. I feel like it's one of those topics that's um, hard to grasp all at once because mm. there's there's essential <laughs> elements but it, it unpacks to a lot and i think um, my my final thought on the the idea of packaging it so that it's not about making money is more of like what david unwin's doing where it's about saving mm. money and mm. that is, oh absolutely that, that is mm. that if if there's a if there's a left brain drive that you can let people latch on to it's maybe, mm. you know, um, that if you do like him, then you can save your GP practice £60,000 a year on diabetes drugs mm. alone, never mm. mind all the human positivity. Mm. Yeah. That's, mm. why, that's how I feel positive about it all. Mm. And I mean, it's just exciting just knowing it. But once you do have these theories, then you don't make so many mistakes, you know. Um, if you understand that all those nutrients are going to make your immune system um, better then you you don't need to look for the next big diet you know suddenly everything's got simple um, you know if you know that physical activity doesn't burn a lot of energy we're far too efficient but it activates and makes our repair system it, it, it's like a slightly negative product to make it do get going with its repair system 
Um, you don't need to count calories because they ne it never worked anyway, but it just doesn't matter as long as you get enough of the good nutrients, you know. And managing your addictions, once you know they've got them, then you get help and you manage them and everyone else has got them and you don't lay guilt trips. And so it does, it's actually short circuits an enormous amount of things. I wish it would short circuit a lot of the rubbish, you know, sort of research, um, you know, commodity technology research. And we get on to really looking at how can we farm in this area, use the resources. And I mean, I'm sure most people would rather be out in the fields working. Um, you know, they keep talking about, oh, we haven't got enough money to pay people to work in the fields. Um, in a factory where, you, where you've got all these poisonous paints and things, how can one compare with the other, you know? Um, and yeah, this, and we can still keep thinking and inventing new technologies. I'm just, I'm just really want to, what I'd love to do is look at all the green technologies that are coming here, you know, where the, where the whole life cycle is looked at. So right from your mining to your, or recycling those resources to, to where it's gonna go again, you know? So there's lots to look forward to, but we've got to get our act together and we've got to um, really start to not waste time on things which are so clearly dysfunctional and not gonna work in, in, in a planet that's um, surviving and flourishing. Yeah. Absolutely, and I can see, uh, if you'll indulge me, a part two to this, where we've looked at the past and the present Mm. We can look at the potential future, mm. all, the, yeah. all the things that that mm. might involve. Maybe we could do that sometime. Yes, yes. Well, I think that's, that's the way to go. But you do need to know about the past and what, what we can re-employ, just like evolution does. It sort of repurposes things um, in a positive way. But we always know what's gone on in the past because it's in the, in the genetic you know, reservoir of huge amount of information and adaptation potential. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not so worried. I'm more worried about the nasty chemicals than I am of the, of the greenhouse gases <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Well, it was great talking okay. to you. I really appreciate it. And um, mm. I don't know if there's anywhere online that you want people to find you or whether you want to remain mysterious. No, no, no. The message needs to get out there. I do believe it. Um, I've got a lot to learn, I know, and I've, I will be wrong on, on certain areas. But no, I'd like people to try and have this broad look um, of life and how, to, how it's, it is humans and, and how it is also the whole planet. Um, so no, anyone who wants to listen, I'd be pleased can help um, and, you know, um, to listen to them. And I want some feedback. So please. <laughs> at, um, on Science Direct or somewhere like that where all your research is or... Yeah, yes, that would be good. Yes, I mean, I do have some papers out there, but um, then they're, they're a bit discoordinated. I'm always trying to write new ones and give new talks. Social media? Oh, I'm not very good at social media. It just takes so much time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do have a Facebook page, but I, um, I don't really... I, I watch what other people put in. I don't put anything on it. And I'm not very good with LinkedIn or any of those. So, um, yeah, I might just have to look into that. But I just... I need to not quite do so much general practice and get going with a research group that wants to look at some of these things or a lot of these things yeah. without excluding the others. That's what I'm really hoping to do. Well, so yes, put, put me anywhere that you like. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will do. Thanks again, Anthea. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Ali, and thank you for noticing and, uh, and taking this time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. 
And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.